Now you can grab your Bible and begin opening, opening it up to Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> but as you do, I want you to, to listen to a, a couple quotes that will get us headed in the right direction. No ancient or modern philosopher, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Russell, ever taught such far-reaching ideas about love. No political figure from Julius Caesar to Winston Churchill has made such demands upon his followers to love. And no religious teacher, whether Buddha, Confucius, or Muhammad, ever commanded his followers to love one another as he loved them and gave his life for them. No other system of theology or philosophy says so much about the divine motivation of love or expresses love to the degree of Christ's death on the cross or makes the demands of love like the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles. You can search far and wide, you can look at every religion, and you will never find the commands of love, the centrality of love, the supremacy of love as you will find taught by Jesus Christ and taught by the apostles and presented to us in the Word of God in the Holy Scriptures. That quote, that paragraph I read is written by Alexander Strauch in his little book, Love or Die, Christ's Wake-Up Call to the Church. It's so important that we wake up to this call to love, that the church is characterized by love. It is a distinctive of Christianity, and it is something that as Christians develop in their hearts and minds, it helps us to show the world what God is like. And yet, you know, perhaps you've seen, that it's possible to drift into lovelessness, D.A. Carson, in his article, in this paragraph that I'll quote to you, the article was titled, A Church That Does All the Right Things But... Dot, dot, dot. He has this paragraph. He says, They still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and compassion. They preserve the truth and witness courageously, But forget that love is the great witness to truth. Love is the great witness to truth. It is not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed out love, but that no amount of good works or wisdom or discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance, in hardship and hatred of sin or disciplined doctrine can ever make up for lovelessness. This is what we talked about last week. If you remember the context of Mark chapter 12, it was the scribe coming up to Jesus, asking him the question, what's the biggest commandment? What's the greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament law? If you were to summarize them, if you were to sum them up, what would be the biggest commandment, the most important one out of them all? And do you remember the reply? It was that we should love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, everything we've got, we ought to love God with everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
And so we spent some time reflecting last week on the supremacy of love, the priority of love, the primacy of love in the Christian life, that we ought to be people distinctively given to love, that no other religion in the world ought to be compared to the way Christians and Christianity produces love in the hearts of those who know the truth. And then that second one, which follows out from it, and that is to love your neighbor. This is what we spend so much time talking about. Let me read the text to you again. Look at it in chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And then I'll tell you kind of what we're doing this morning. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Remember, there's all these different people who are trying to stump Jesus discredit him. But this scribe sees, it says, that he answered them well and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, and you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The greatest command God has given to humanity is that we love him. And that love then pours out of our lives toward our neighbors. That we have a fervent, vigorous, wholehearted, whole-bodied, whole-souled affection for the one who made us and loves us. For our creator, for the God of this universe that we are the ones who adore Him and delight in Him and admire Him. And so before we uh, get into where we're going, I'm gonna, we, last week we, we talked about the, the, the priority of love, if you remember that. We, we talked about this idea of our highest calling being that we love. And we looked at that. And then we looked at the danger of substitute love and that rather than uh, having love being poured out of our hearts and genuinely with our affections delighting in God, we, we turn into religious activity. Uh, many of us get into the trap of, I need to love God more. And so I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm going to create a big to-do list. And I'm going to get really busy with all these religious uh, activities. And we skip the part where we actually address our hearts. That was last week. And I was thinking about going into part three, but I thought it might be better not to keep you till Wednesday morning. Um, because I think this third section, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, the cultivation of love is so important. It's worth reflecting on. So this morning is kind of built on last week. If you weren't here last week, maybe you can go and listen to that one, uh, where we went a little more in depth into the text. And now what we're going to do is consider if the command, the, the greatest and highest command that God gives to his people is that we love him. The question we ask ourselves is if, if, if I'm not just supposed to get busy with all this religious activity, if that's not really what God wants primarily, but what he actually wants is a heart aflame with passion for him 
and devotion for him. If that's what he has called us to, the question is, well, how do we do that? How do you cultivate love in your heart? I'm not talking about changing external behavior. I'm talking about changing your inner being. I'm talking about the part of you that thinks and reasons and evaluates and feels, the part of you that delights and longs and aches. How do you get that part of you, which seems so out of reach, to be filled with affection for God, the one who's invisible, that you can't see? How do you have love, real love and passion for him, the kind of love that Jesus is describing here, the, the love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you get that? How do you get there? I want to set us up by thinking about something Jonathan Edwards taught, and then we're going to get into five different things we must do. Jonathan Edwards, some of you have heard of him, maybe some of you have read of him. He was someone who lived in the 1700s, was instrumental in the Great Awakening in America in those days. He wrote a book called The Religious Affections. The religious affections was written because there was all kinds of revivals happening around him during his days when he was preaching. And he began to realize some years after the revivals that many of the people who began, who had during the fervency of the Great Awakening began to profess love for God, but as the years passed, they fell away. In other words, he began to realize that some people got caught up in the excitement of it, but they didn't have the real thing. They didn't have the real thing. It was something that was external only. It was something that was emotional only. And he began to think and put his brilliant mind to evaluating, well, what is the difference between the true affections, the true heart that genuinely loves God and that adheres to God and stays with him throughout the rest of his life, and the heart that gets excited is a flash in the pan, that gets caught up in the emotions of it and then drifts away as soon as it gets hard. How do you know the difference between those two things? And so he wrote his book explaining his study and his thinking about these two differences. And one of the things he begins by doing in his book is he breaks up the person, the human being, into two parts. And this won't be completely unfamiliar to you. And follow along. He says, every person has two aspects of their being. One, they have an understanding, right? You have a brain. You have a mind. And with this, you can perceive, you can observe, you can understand. This is your understanding. God has given you the ability to grow in knowledge of a thing. But there's another part of every person as well that Edwards wanted to point out. And what that is, is often described as the heart. These are the things that, it's not only what you know, but it's what you're drawn to. What you see as beautiful and good and attractive. The things that grab hold of your heart and your affections and bring you in. See, it's one thing to have a knowledge, let's say of a rose, and to say it's, got a green stem, and it's got a deep red color on its petals, but it's quite another thing when your heart is drawn to it and you say, it's beautiful. It's a difference between Edward's famous analogy, it's the difference between touching honey and feeling its stickiness and maybe putting it in your mouth and feeling it as this kind of gooey, slimy substance but having no taste. And then putting it in when you have the function of taste and experiencing it in an entirely different way. If something moves from mere understanding to this is sweet, this brings delight, 
This is good. This is tasty. You say, why am I, I, I saying all this? Because when the Bible is talking about love, it's not merely talking about you using your mind to gather information, to grow in knowledge, so that you have a big database with a lot of facts about God. Now, that is important, but that is not it. Edwards highlights the other element. And the question he asks is, not only do you know God, but does your knowledge of God cause you to spontaneously spring into delight, into rejoicing, into affection, In other words, as you see more of who God is, is your heart being drawn into Him? Is it wanting more? Is it desiring to please Him and taking pleasure in Him? This is an important distinction. I'll read you what he said. God... This is Edwards. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, understanding, but by its being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is received by the whole soul, both the understanding and the heart. God made the world that He might communicate And his creatures receive his glory that it may be received both by the mind and by the heart. What good is it if you are a mighty theologian whose heart is cold? Or the facts you can so eloquently talk about don't warm your own heart. They don't bring you any delight. I'm sure you've maybe met someone who has become, or maybe you've heard of someone who has become merely academic in their understanding of the things of God. And they could talk circles around the average Christian. And yet, deep down, they don't have a delight, a joy, a pleasure in God. Here is why I'm starting with this. is because when we're talking about love for God, that we love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength, we need to understand it isn't merely that we have a knowledge of Him. It isn't merely that we can understand Him. It is also that we have hearts that delight in Him. Do you see the connection between delight and love? Would it be possible to say, I love my wife. She just brings me no delight. This is just one problem. I really love her with all my heart. I just have no joy when I'm around her. Just sucks it right out of me. Would you say, actually, you don't love God, or you don't love your wife, I mean, maybe both. You don't, you don't actually love your wife. You know, you, you know you love someone when their mere presence brings you joy. I want to be with you. 
And so when we're talking about love for God, we're not talking about, I know all the facts, we're talking about to know Him is to delight in Him, to hear Him and hear His voice and His word brings me pleasure. To obey Him is my highest joy. This is what I want to do with my life. I love Him. So be wary, church, where there is great knowledge and no delight, no joy, no pleasure, because you might begin to ask yourself, do I actually love him? Let me ask you that question, because this entire morning we'll be considering how we grow in love for God. Do you love God? Do you love God as God? God as He is. Not for all the blessings He's given you. Not for all the ways He's made your life good. Not for all the comforts He's showered you with. But for who He is. If He were to remove all the blessings that He has showered upon you from your life, like He did with Job, would you fall on your face and worship Him anyway? Could you say, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, you could take it all away, but whom have I in heaven but you? My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are my delight, God. Take it all. I have you. I love you. You are what I'm building everything on. Everything else is gravy, but you are my strength and my portion and my satisfaction. I delight in you. That's love. That's how you know you love God. Do you love God? Do you delight in God? Does He bring you joy? Does He bring you pleasure? See, your life, church, is not primarily your Christian following of Jesus, following of the Lord. is not primarily about your duty, although there's duty involved, but it's not primarily about your output and the fruitfulness that you can do. It's not primarily about what position you attain, what office you can hold. It's not primarily about getting the right pathway in your career and establishing some perfect life that looks great. It is primarily about your affections. Do you love Him? Honestly and genuinely, sincerely and from the heart, do you love God? And whenever I ask myself these questions, I feel discouraged. Because I know I don't love him nearly as much as he deserved to be loved by me. And that my love for him is so frail according to his worth and his beauty. And my ability to appreciate his beauty is so weak in comparison to how beautiful he is. And so whenever I think that I ought to love the Lord my God with all my heart, whenever we think about this as a church, we got to also start thinking, well, what do we do to, to grow here? How do we grow that we love Him more? How do we grow that we love God more? On one hand, you might say, well, there's really nothing we can do. It's all an act of God. God regenerates the heart. God grants faith in repentance. God, the Holy Spirit, produces love. Remember, love's a fruit of the Spirit. All these things are true. And yet Scripture also commands, according to Jude verse 21, keep yourself, this is an imperative, keep yourself into, in the love of God. Keep yourself there. Psalm 31, 23, love the Lord, all you saints. 
There's a supernatural work that God must do in me to make me see his glory, to enable me to understand his majesty and to give me a love for him. God alone can do that in my heart. And yet, I am fa- we see here in Scripture that we are called to love him. We are responsible, accountable to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what do we do? What do we do? I want to talk through five different things. Let's begin at the very beginning. This will be a little bit of a topical sermon that is like a trampoline. We're bouncing off of the passage in Mark. And so get your Bibles ready to turn, from, to, 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 turn to different references, turn to different passages. We're going to start. You can stay in Mark 12 because we'll, we'll look there for a second. Here's the first thing we all need to do. If you are at all convicted that you need to love God better with your life, number one, repent. Repent. The beginning of a life of love, whether you have never loved God in all your life, it's all been a show, it's all been religion only, it's all been external. Maybe you've been a Pharisee, maybe you've been a hypocrite. You've never really loved them at all. What do you do? You repent. Or if you are a Christian and you follow the Lord and you recognize that your heart is mixed, that your, your heart is uh, sometimes motivated not by love for God, but by love for self. And you know, I've got to grow. I've got to love Him more. What do you do? You repent. What does that mean? What that means is you come to the realization that you are guilty and unable to keep the law that God has given you in the first place. you got to come to the point where you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you're utterly helpless to do the things that God has required of you. I want to show you something. Look at the passage here. Look at verse 34. This is right after the scribe. The scribe goes, you are right, teacher as if you know, he's the one over Jesus, affirming Jesus. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There's no other besides him, all that. He's getting it right. And then, I want you to skip down to verse 34. Jesus responds to the scribe. It says, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely. So the scribe's answer was good. It was a good answer. It was a wise answer. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Think about that answer. <laughs> As usual, this is a, a brilliant response by Jesus, isn't it? You're, you're not far. He didn't say you're in. He didn't say you're wrong. He said you're not far. You're close, but you're not in. There's, there's something about this that's a really interesting answer that Jesus gives that we've got to think about. Why does he say it this way? Why does he affirm the nearness to the kingdom without affirming that he's in it? You see that question? Here's why. Is it enough to know the commands of God and to know the law of God, knowing the law of God and doing your best to obey the law of God, is that what gets you into the kingdom of heaven? No. You see, he knew the law. He knew what God required. He knew what the greatest commandment was. He was right, and so Jesus affirms that you're right about knowing the law. And yet, the Bible never says, listen, the Bible never says that the way you get into heaven, the way you get right with God, is by knowing his law and trying really hard to keep it. You will never get into heaven that way. You cannot make yourself right with God that way. He was right about the law, but no one has ever gotten into the kingdom by law-keeping. 
No. How do you get into the kingdom? You could see it right there in the first chapter of Mark. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus began preaching, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Believe that. You don't get to heaven by your law keeping. You don't get to heaven by keeping the the rules good enough or trying hard by your efforts at all, not by any human merit. What do you do? You recognize that you have failed to keep the law, that you are guilty before the law, that you could never possibly live up to the requirements of the law. How many of you for one second in your life have ever loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I mean, who would dare to make that claim? That we have loved God perfectly? Have we ever done this? We have all failed. We fail this every day. When other things creep in like idols and they get on the throne of our hearts, we are violating the most important command. And we are committing grave sin against God. We don't get into the kingdom by trying harder We are sinners against a holy God. God requires perfection. He is holy. We cannot share fellowship with Him while being in our sin. And so law-keeping is not going to work because even the best day that you've ever had in all your life has still been tainted by sin. What does God require? Repent. Confess that you cannot do it. Confess that you are guilty. Confess that you are a sinner. Confess that you have nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Recognize your spiritual poverty before God, your spiritual inability before God, and what do you do? In repentance, you turn to God, turning away from any self-effort, and you are completely and abjectly, listen, dependent on God's mercy, grace, That's the only way into the kingdom. What happens when you see this? You go turning from self-effort, religious activity, trying to love God. You recognize that you fail. You turn to Him and you find what is He doing? His arms are wide open. There's grace and mercy for every sinner who comes to Him with humble and repentant faith. And you realize that He loves you and He wants you and He will be long-suffering with you and patient with you and He will redeem you. And as you think about His Love, what does it do to your own heart? It begins to fill your own heart out with love. Love for Him. God begins to do a work in you once you realize that you can't do the work yourself. You start with repentance. If you want to love God more in 2022, start by saying, God, I have failed in 2021 and in every other year before that. And I come to you recognizing I can't do this. I come to you recognizing that my heart is so turned inward that I can't love you, I can't look to you, I can't see your beauty, I can't see your glory. Unless you do something, God, I will be bound to be a selfish man all my life. Wrapped up in my own things, unable to appreciate your majesty. Unless you act upon me. And in humble repentance faith, you say, Lord, do it. God loves to answer the prayers of the repentant. In fact, he will answer the prayers of the repentant. As you repent, 
You don't stay there. Let's look at the second thing that you'll do this year to grow in your love for God. You will meditate on the character of God. Been reminded of this as we've done our core seminars and we've been looking at theology proper. Justin's been teaching us, talking through the attributes of God a few weeks ago, and this morning, the sovereignty of God. You're not in a class like this or in a place where you can think about these things and reflect on these things, I would encourage you to jump right in. Because, listen, this is a really important fact. I think we gloss over this or we don't think about this. You can't love a God you don't know, right? You can't love a person you don't know very well. You could maybe have goodwill toward them, but God has revealed himself that you might know him. You might know him. The scriptures let us know about God. Some of you may not be experiencing much love for God because you actually don't know him very well. What you think you know about God is actually a bunch of cliches you've picked up over the years and some spiritual platitudes that have sounded good and looked good on a coffee mug. Some of us have never actually perused the scriptures to see what God says about himself. Some of us have never read through and responded with everything God is saying about himself with glory and meditation and awe and wonder at who he is revealing he is. This is what we ought to know. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and he knows me that I am the Lord. This is what ought to be the greatest boast of our lives, is that we know God, that we think of Him, that we love Him, that we're near Him. I wonder if you meditate on God. You ever meditated? Not the kind of meditation that is so popular these days where you try to empty your mind. You make some weird noise, oh, something like that. This is not what we're talking about. This is not the Bible talking about meditation. If you want to actually do a study on meditation, just just search the Word and see all the times it comes up in the Scripture. The Bible commends, even demonstrates, meditation is a critical part of the Christian life. From the very first psalm, the, the blessed man is the one who meditates on the Word of the Lord day and night. That is to ruminate on, to think about it, to let it fill your mind, not empty it. You fill your mind with who he is. Psalm 63, David is in the wilderness. He's facing the danger of the wilderness. He writes in verses 5 and 6, listen to this. He says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. Just, just let, let that image, imagine your soul. All of us have hungry souls. As I mentioned in my prayer, so many of us are trying to fill our souls with the scraps of the world. But what if your soul could be satisfied? Like it's being, like it's feasting like it's feasting on something healthy and good and it's growing strong. What will you need to feed your soul? David says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth with praise to you and joyful lips. You want your mouth to turn from that which is spewing filth to that which is pouring forth praise? You want your lips to be the the, the things that help you pronounce the glories of God and give blessings to your fellow man, what do you do? Listen to what David says. This will happen when I remember you 
upon my bed and meditate on you, on you, God, in the watches of the night. David's saying, others are sleeping. I'm there on my bed remembering who God is, and I'm there on my bed remembering him and thinking about him and pondering him. I'm meditating on God, and as I meditate on God himself, it feeds my soul. I wonder if you have any time to meditate on God. We're we're such pragmatists. And we don't make time for things like meditation. Because what practical value does it add to my day? Church, if you don't have time to meditate on God's character, change your schedule now. Today. You will not survive the Christian life You will not survive this fallen world if you don't know your God, if you don't think about Him, if you don't meditate on Him. Your life will be a drab, dull drudgery if you refuse to let your mind grab hold of the glories of God. Because your mind will grab hold of something. J.I. Packer puts it this way in his book, Knowing God. The study of God is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. You don't want to do that. Let 2022 be the year that you start traversing the everlasting hills of God's character. Step by step seeing more beautiful vistas of his glory and majesty. Let this be the year where you are going back and forth in the Scriptures observing who God is, who He is. Let Him tell you who He is. You could do something practical. Grab a pen. Grab uh, maybe a blue pen. I don't know. And every time you see something that shows you what kind of God is existing in this world, what kind of God is real, the true God, every time you see it, you mark it and you worship Him for that. You cannot, must not, I would plead with you, don't let this year be another year where you go through it not spending any time pondering the glories and the majesties of God. Your soul will shrink. You don't do that. Pick up J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Pick up, pick up A.W. Pink's Attributes of God or Sovereignty of God. Pick up books that will help you uh, be like a good guide for you, that will walk with you as you seek to meditate on the glories of God. Third, if you want to continue to grow in love for God this year, bask in the infinite love of God in Christ for you. Bask. Sit in it. This is another way of saying meditate on it. And I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Bask in the infinite love of God in Christ for you, Christian. I think we might sometimes feel bad in our circles, spending too much time thinking about how much God loves us because we are, and rightfully so, concerned with being too man-centered. We don't want to be man-centered, and that's right. We want to be God-centered and remember God's pursuit of his own glory that is right for us to do. And yet, there is a place that Scripture reminds us again and again that we ought to regularly reflect on God's love for us. 
Go to chapter 3 of Ephesians and look in verse 14. Read to, the, uh, read to verse 19. Paul has just finished the first three chapters, or he's in the process of finishing this first section of Ephesians, which is all about the glory of God as he has chosen a people for himself and redeemed them by the blood of his Son, given them a spirit, and united them in the church. It's a glorious section of Scripture. And then he begins to pray for the Ephesians at the end of this section. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Listen to this. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know that which surpasses knowledge. He's praying that we might know something that's unknowable and unsearchable and unfathomable, something that you can't possibly get to the depths of. What is it? The love of Christ for you. You, Christian, ought to regularly reflect on the infinite love that Christ has for you. When was the last time you spent time thinking about how much God loves you? You meditated on this recently? Any time at all this week, you spent 15 minutes thinking about Christ. One of the things that it's really helpful for me, I'll, I'll share with you, is I like to meditate on the love that God has for me by thinking of it in terms of a timeline. I start by going to eternity past, and then I end in eternity future. Glorious exercise. I'd encourage you to do that sometime this week, maybe in your own devotions. You could do this. You start in eternity past, and you reflect on verses or, or truths that are found in places like Ephesians 1. You know what? God loved me before he created the world. God loved me before the foundation of the earth. God knew me before I existed. He he had me on his heart before I was born. And he chose to set his love upon me. His perfect, everlasting, redeeming love. Before I had done anything right. Before I had done anything wrong. He chose to set his love upon me. And then I move a little bit further into the timeline. About 2,000 years ago, God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. The second member of the Trinity came. He became incarnate. He became a man. He took upon himself my guilt. He had names on his mind when he was going to the cross because he was going to pay for their sins. And I was there with him. And he went to the cross determined out of love to redeem me, to pay for my sin, to pay for my guilt, and to pay for my shame, to go to that cross so that I might not have to face the judgment I deserved. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death and hell, guaranteeing my redemption. And then, about 36 years ago, little Eric Durst was born to the world, a sinner, a viper in a diaper, as they say. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was not a good person. I was a fool, and I thought I was wise. And I was pursuing myself, and I thought it was good. And I called right wrong and wrong right. And yet God, who had set his love on me in eternity past, continued to love me. 
And he sent parents and preachers and churches and mentors and friends and books and sermons all around me, hemming me in so I couldn't escape the love of Christ for me. It became clear that all along he had loved me, that all along he had pursued me, that he chased me down, as Spurgeon says, like the hound of heaven. He tracked me down. He brought me to himself. He redeemed me. He opened my eyes. He brought me to faith. He granted me repentance. He united me with his son. He gave me a new destiny and glory with Christ for all eternity. And from that moment forward, he has never done anything but good to me. He has been kind. And listen, Christian, he has been doing the same for you. He has brought you to himself. He loves you perfectly, and he will love you perfectly for the next 10 seconds, the next 10 minutes, the next 10 decades, the next 10 millennia. For all eternity, he will love you. And he will love you in everlasting glory, as Ephesians 2, verse 7 says, that he will show and he will lavish upon you in the coming ages the riches of his kindness. Christian, you are so secure because of the love of Christ. We are so loved. And I wonder if we sometimes forget it. And when we forget it, we grow lethargic and cold. But there is nothing like staring at the love of Christ that will melt your soul and lift your spirits and increase your love and that you will say, how could I live for anything else than for my Savior? I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. I wonder how often you bask in the infinite love of Christ. How often do you tell yourself, do you tell yourself, my sins deserve eternal punishment. But God, and God, was not obligated to save me. But, Because of his great love, because of his great mercy, he sent his son to accomplish my salvation at great cost to himself so that I could be forgiven all my sins, that I could be adopted into his family, and that I could be the object of his love for all eternity. It doesn't get any better than this, church. Allow yourself to swim in this ocean of grace. Plunge headfirst. Don't hold back. You're allowed to enjoy this love. You haven't earned it. You can't lose it, Christian. It is free. It is from God. It is an ever-flowing spring. Drink up. It's all yours forever because of Christ. That fuels our heart for love. Number four, to fuel and grow in our love for God, here's a warning. Be aware of, of your almost infinite appetite for distraction. Because the three things I've just mentioned, repentance, meditating on God's character, and basking in the great love of God that he has for us, you can't do those things if you are unable to think. This is why the Bible often talks about training our minds Think about such things, the Bible will say. Set your mind on such things, the Bible says. Take every thought captive, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 
3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. You know what it means to behold something? It means to be transfixed. It's what happens when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. You sit there and you can't get your eyes off it. It's so beautiful. You're in awe. You're stunned. And what does the text say in 2 Corinthians 3.18? It says, when you are beholding Christ, you are transformed into his image. If you want to be transformed into a person who loves God more, you have to be able to behold his glory. And the enemy of our day that cuts off our ability to behold him is our distraction. Fighting distractions in your life is all out war. It is war because they're coming for you from every angle, are they not? Love for God grows in the pure soils of an uncrowded mind, a mind that is gripped and filled by the majesty of God, inspired by great thoughts of God and great thoughts of His work. Think about the ways that your mind is being hijacked. There's a book titled Attention Merchants, which describes how your attention is a commodity to be captured, bought, and sold. People want your attention. And actually, people have been studying how to get your attention for years now because if they can have your attention, they can make money. And they're experts at it. And so many of us have been so given over to these people trying to grab our attention, we are no longer able to think deeply about anything because as soon as we try, something comes and distracts us. We can't think for five seconds about God. We can't reflect on the gospel without being pulled to our phones, without wanting to check social media, without being bombarded in our minds with what's going to happen to the next episode of that Netflix series we're watching. And what begins to happen is we consume so much of this type of smut that it becomes, our, our brains, our minds become so trivialized. There's nothing inspiring that happens on Instagram. There's nothing that lifts the spirit and causes us to soar in love. There's nothing that gives us great thoughts of God that's happening between the bits and clips and buzzes and tweets that we are finding online. And when we feed ourselves these things, what we feed on is what we become. And the mind that is fed by the drivel of social media and all the stuff that the world is throwing at us, it becomes so crippled that it cannot even, does not even, have the capacity to think great thoughts about God. Many Christians cannot feel the glories of God. They cannot feel the horrors of hell. They cannot feel the wonders of grace because, as one author put it, their souls are stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. What's your soul stuffed with? When there's silence in the house, where does your mind drift? What is it captured by? Are you able to sustain a thought about God? And if not, where do you go? What do you do? If your mind has so been ransacked by the attention merchants that you no longer can focus on anything for longer than five seconds, where do you start? Go back to square one, repent. Ask God for help. Confess your inability. It's been said in one study that Americans spend five hours a day on their phones. 
If you spent half that time reading your Bible, two and a half hours a day, that'd be quite a long time every day to read your Bible. And so instead of going straight to some app on your phone, you went straight to your Bible. You read it. Just half the time that normal Americans spend on their phone. Did you know you could read the entire Bible 12 times in a year? Once a month. Many of us say, I don't have time. Meditate on God. I don't have time to bask in His glory. I don't have time. I'm so rushed. I'm, I'm so busy. Uh, I, I just, you know, I can't read any scriptures because, you know, I'm in and out the door. I'm, I'm at work. I got things going on. John Piper says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook. You could throw on their Instagram and Snapchat. I don't know all the other ones that are out these days. One of the great uses of social media, we'll say, will be to prove that in the last day, prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Meditation is not for lack of time. Reading in your Bible is not for lack of time. It's for lack of love for God, lack of prioritizing Him. And so I ask, where are the 21st century Christians who have phones and TVs and all the rest? Where are the 21st century Christians who are free? Who are they that, who among us can reflect and think and ponder and sustain a thought and think deeply about God who can read a scripture and wring out from it the glories that are there? Can you savor it? So this warning goes for all of us, myself included. Be aware of your almost infinite appetite for distraction. Help each other in this. Lastly, build deep spiritual friendships within your church. Build deep spiritual friendships within your church. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This is where we're wrapping it up. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Because it might be surprising, but it's true, that if we want to love God more, we got to get some people in the battle with us. We don't do this alone, do we? If you go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, I'm going to show you this. This is a verse that we look at regularly. The author says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, there's a danger that lingers in every one of our hearts is that we'll fall away. And listen, what is the God-designed mechanism for stopping you from falling away? It is the presence of brothers and sisters in your life who will talk to you and exhort you and encourage you to keep you from being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. God has called you to have friends. There are Christians that love you enough to say, hey, don't go that way. Or, hey, here's what's going on in your heart, and I want to help you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to exhort you. You need somebody to be in your life who can exhort you every day as long as it is called today. Do you have anyone like that who knows you, who really knows you and can encourage you? Just uh Last week, or a couple weeks ago, I was reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It's a story that, uh, about this guy who gets dropped off in the afterlife, and he's making his journey up into the mountains, which represents heaven. And all along the way, there's these kind of angel-like beings that come and lead him. And 
he's a ghost and he's meeting these ghosts along the way and the closer you get to heaven the more unghost-like you become it's an interesting kind of allegory type thing but what along the way he's meeting all these different people who for whatever reason they don't want to go to heaven and when one woman that he meets along the journey is terrified petrified that she's see-through she realizes she's a ghost and she's trying to hide behind trees and hide in the grass and and, and and the character is going, what's, what's going on with, with, with this person? And she starts saying, I don't want anyone to see me. Terrified. One of the angels goes to her and starts talking to her and says, why are you so afraid that people might see me? They'll see me like this? They'll see right through me. I don't want, I couldn't ever let them see me like this. The angel says, what does it matter if they do? She replies, I'd rather die. She turns around and goes the opposite way, where everyone is a ghost, rather than go to heaven where she can be made solid. It's an allegory. But what struck me is how often people would rather be unseen than experience great blessings. So many of us would rather hide. Some of us might say, I'd rather die than someone know what's really going on in my heart. I'd rather die than let someone hear about my past. I'd rather die than tell you the things I'm struggling with. They don't realize it, but they're like that woman giving up such tremendous blessing. Such immense blessing could be theirs if they just opened their lives to one another, as is described in Scripture, that others might see them. Friends, you need to make sure someone sees you really sees you. You need to make sure there's someone in your life that you can go to and you can say to them, hey, I'm going to show you who I am and you're going to see some things that are kind of gross, filthy, and maybe surprising. But I'm going to do it because I trust you and I want you to help me. We need to be those kind of people when someone comes to do that with us, we say, listen, you are loved. In the gospel, you are loved, you are cleansed, you are forgiven, and whatever sins you're struggling with do no longer define you. You're defined by Christ. Do you have anyone who knows you, knows your struggles, knows your concerns, knows the things you're wrestling with? And if there's anyone here who's maybe built an impenetrable wall, keeping people out, Maybe today could be the day that you tear that thing down and let people in. You want to cultivate love for God this year? You've got to have some friends that love the Lord who are going to help you. Are you cultivating any elements of your inner being, in your mind, in your heart? Are you doing any of these things? This is the greatest thing we can commit ourselves to, isn't it? And if we're not cultivating in our hearts a love for God, if we're trying to coast, let me tell you this, there's no such thing as a coasting Christian. A coasting Christian is a drifting Christian. And as Matt Smethers said, I want to leave this ringing in your ears, the devil is more likely to dull your affections over a decade than to destroy your soul in a day? Are your affections slowly, slowly, slowly being dulled and numbed 
So repent and recommit to cultivate a love for God. Let's pray. How desperately we need your help. We corporately, Lord, this morning, for all the ways that we have not loved you the way you deserve to be loved, we repent. We admit our guilt. We admit our need. We confess our bankruptcy. And we ask, Lord, for help, for power, for grace to change us. Change us this year. Change us in 2022. In profound and eternal ways, change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.